0: In fact, Isaiah would tell us that same thing, that we are upheld by his righteous right hand. Paul would tell us in Ephesians that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Nothing can take us from the love and the affection and the salvation of God. And so thank you for reminding us of that great truth that the Bible tells us about our faith. If you've got your Bible handy, I'm going to invite you to take it and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read verse 27 in just a minute, and then we're going to use that to springboard into our message this morning, talking about the issue, the subject of sexuality. We've been in this series for now five Sundays, working through different topics that are um, cultural issues in our nation, and today we come to the fifth and almost final message in this series, talking about sexuality, mainly biblical sexuality. We're going to look at the, the sexual conversation that is cultural, and we're going to compare it to what the Bible would say and the Bible's definition of what sexuality should be and what it should look like in our lives as believers. So Genesis chapter 1, look with me, verse 27. Moses says this about the creation account. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I said a few weeks ago that if we get Genesis wrong, we will get life wrong. If we don't understand what God says at the very beginning of the Bible about what life looks like, what life is to be, what life should be, then we're going to play that out in our lives. And our lives will not be right. And today, I think we can all agree that we are living in perhaps the most sexualized generation in our nation's history. Over the last 60 years, American culture has moved into this, what we would call, sexual revolution. Revolution, we have moved from a leave-it-to-beaver, Andy Griffith sort of culture to a bachelor sex-in-the-city type of mindset. You know, it used to be taboo to talk about or to display any sort of, uh, uh, of sexual aspect on television. It used to be taboo to talk about it. Even way back when in the early movies and television shows, they would not even show a man and a woman kissing on set in a scene. And yet today we have moved to the far other side of the pendulum. Today's shows and movies uh, typically blatantly show everything that there is to show when it comes to sexuality. Traditional marriage and traditional families are now the exception in culture, in in how the media portrays within within culture. They're the exception rather than the norm. And so this sexual revolution, as you may imagine, has tragically desensitized us to this subject. It's desensitized us to sexual and sensual things. And so today, it's nearly impossible to watch. It's nearly impossible to read. It's nearly impossible to to listen to anything that does not contain some element of this revolution. It's impacted and, and affected every aspect of our culture. It's pervasive within our culture. And in its wake, it has created much confusion. It's created much division within our nation. And devastating to individuals and families. I think we could go there around the room, we could poll those who are watching us online this morning, and we could ask the question, how has this sort of revolution, this sexual revolution, impacted your family? And every one of us could tell stories of how it has impacted and destroyed homes, families, children, futures, marriages, all of that has been impacted. This revolution has resulted... Into what we see today, wide acceptance of fornication, which is premarital sex, pornography. Uh, used to be that that was so taboo you would never touch it. Now it, it comes in all forms and fashions, and we embrace it as a culture on different levels. And that level of embracement is always moving more and more into full embracement. Revolutions moved into wide acceptance of homosexuality and the transgender issue, cohabitation, and even open marriages. I believe that young adults and teenagers today, because of the culture influence and this revolution that's influenced all of us, and particularly of those generations today, the. Young adults and the teenagers are largely believing that these things are normal and these things are good. This is the pattern of life. This is what they've grown up knowing. Therefore, it is good. And yet, I don't believe, in fact, I know for certain that the Bible would speak otherwise. Sexuality is one other area of deep division within America. We've looked at four other areas so far. Today we're going to look at this area of sexuality because as we stand today, as we look at our nation, as we look at the cultural issues within our country, we know that we're in a fight. We know that we're fighting for the soul of this country. We know we're fighting for who we're going to be as we continue to move forward and progress. Uh, We've been saying it throughout this series that we as a church, the church, as a local church as well. We cannot be silent on any of these issues. We cannot be silent when it comes to the issue of sexuality. We cannot be silent when it comes to the issue of how this impacts our children and our grandchildren, how it impacts marriages and families and and every aspect of our culture. We cannot, nor must we, be silent We have a role to play, and we have to play the role of salt and light, being a preserving presence, presence, being light shining into the darkness. And yet we know that we find difficulty talking about this issue, right? I I was asked this morning, uh, you're excited about preaching about sexuality. I'm like, yeah, I'm about as excited as talking to my own children about this. And yet it's a conversation that has to be had. We sent a disclaimer out to our church family this week because I don't want to ever just kind of surprise parents with young children saying, all right, by the way, we're talking about sex, and you've got three seconds to do something about it. We wanted you to know as parents who have fourth and fifth graders that if it's not comfortable for you to have your children in here to hear about this issue, feel free to send them to Children's Church. But we believe it's an issue that needs to be spoken to. We believe it's an issue that we need to address and understand biblically what God would say to this issue. Sex is not a bad thing. I'm going to argue that in just a moment. It is a good thing because it's a God thing, and yet sin has perverted it. And so we today as Christians, we need to be like the men of Issachar who understand the times in which we live, know how to speak culturally into this issue, know how to speak truthfully to this issue so that we can point people to God's design and reverse the perversion that's taken everything that God has designed to be good and perverted it into something that is evil and selfish. So as we talk about all of these issues, we're doing so to equip ourselves so that we can engage the conversation. We began with the issue of life. and We talked about how the Bible clearly speaks that man was created in the image of God. We just read it in this verse, Genesis 127. We're created in the image and likeness of God. There's something of the divine within our makeup so that we as humans have intrinsic and eternal value. We're not just a, 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 a glob of cells that pull themselves up out of the slant. Ooze and became a human over billions of years. No, on day six of creation, God said, Let there be man, and there was man. He took the form created from the dust, blew air into the lungs, and life happened. And God declares over that man, It is very good there is value in human life. And so we take that principle and we move it into all the other things that we've looked at. We look at the issue of race and we see that, that humans are of one race, the human race, so all ethnicities have the same intrinsic value, the same eternal value. And Jesus is the one that reconciles us one to another because our sin separates us on a horizontal level. But it's all going back to the image of God. We talk about Immigration is the same thing. We talk about any of these areas, and we see that the Bible speaks to each and every one of them. So we're going to look at the Bible first. We're going to look at the Bible most. It's not to say that others can't speak into the the subject, into the concept, into the issue, but we want to hear what God has to say, and this morning we want to know what God says about sexuality and how it should be expressed in us personally, in marriages, and in our culture. And so let's look at what God has to say in His Word about sexuality. I'm going to make this message... Very simple. I've tried to do that in all these messages. <clears throat> I'm trying to give you just some, some bare bones basics. How do we look at these issues? How do we understand them biblically? Not to go in all of the weeds of the issues. We could talk extensively about all of these subjects and all various parameters that go in, involved. But what does God, if you boil it down to its bare minimum, what does God say about sexuality? That's what I want to share with you, three truths, and then bring some application for us at the end. Truth number one, sexual attraction is a good and gracious gift from God. And the church said, amen, right? I mean, I, I expect a little bit more out of that than, than I got here. It's okay to, to say the word, all right? I know we're in church. I did a funeral here yesterday, and um, it was interesting. I'm sitting here during, during, during the visitation time, and and uh, they asked if they could have music played that, that the gentleman who had passed like to, to listen to, and so it was like oldies, like classic rock type stuff. So I'm sitting right over here during the invitation time, the, uh, the visitation time, and just kind of watching the slideshow, and all of a sudden Tom Petty's song, um, Free Fallin' is playing. I'm thinking, that has never, I guarantee you, been played in this worship center before. It may never again. I mean, I I like the song. I like classic rock. But I'm sitting there thinking, this has never happened before. And, And perhaps that word sex or sexuality has not been said a lot in this worship center. It's okay that we say it. Where else should we be talking about this than in this place, right? We need to know biblically what God says about sex because he is the one who designed it. And so the truth is sexual attraction is a good and gracious gift from God. The subject here may make us feel uncomfortable, especially in church, but we need to talk about it. We may want to avoid discussing it because of how it's abused in society, but we need to understand that sex was and is God's idea. I want you to go a verse further with me in Genesis 1. Look at verse 28. And it says, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How did they do that? Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 the first part of that verse tells us how they did that did that now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain you see right here in the creation account we discover a beautiful gift that God has given mankind he's given us the desire for he's given us the attraction to the opposite gender Adam's naming and I've referred to this before but I firmly believe that when Adam was instructed in Genesis chapter 2 Still, day six of creation, to name the animals. God used that to show Adam there's something missing in his life. Using that to, to show him that he needed a helper suitable for him. That the lion had the lioness. And, and, the, and the, the male bird, who's, it's funny how male birds are always more illustrious and, and beautiful than the female. It's so opposite than, than humans. Our women look so much better than us men. We just, you know, we get up, we throw a hat on, we're good to go. Barely brush our teeth. Women spend hours and they come out immaculate. And yet, that's not true in the animal world. So, far. so in that, Adam's name in this, he sees that everything has its mate, and he realizes there's something missing in me. There's something that's not good in this good creation. Something that God can't even provide for me. I need someone by my side who was like me. He needed a mate. He needed a woman. And you know the story. God took Adam. He took him into the operating room there in the Garden of Eden. He removed a rib from which he fashioned Eve. And Adam, when he got into the recovery room and he comes out of his haze, he looks at this special gift that God has brought by his side. And his response in Genesis 2.23 was this. He says, this is at last, Bone of my bones. It's amazing. He says, this is that last bone of my bones. It's probably only been a few hours since he's created. He's named animals, and all of a sudden, he's got this woman there. But he says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I hope you hear the emotion in Adam's words there. I believe Adam was super excited at what he saw. I believe he's overwhelmed by the beauty and the form of Eve. He was attracted to her, her, and he loved her as he loved himself. What is it about the opposite sex that is so attractive to us? It's because God gave us that. Ability, that desire. And so as Adam sees Eve standing there beside him as he wakes up from this operation, he looks at her and immediately is attracted to her beauty and to her form. His desire for Eve was much deeper than simple procreation. I believe his words here allude to the truth that sexuality is more than mechanistic reproduction. It wasn't that he was just going to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and he needed a mechanism to make that happen. No, he saw in Eve someone who was attractive to him, someone that drew him in, hormones that accompany sexual maturity. They produce in us a strong sexual drive that attracts us toward the opposite gender and is meant to lead us where it led Adam and Eve. It leads us to marital commitment. These hormones that happen when we become teenagers. They begin to flood our bodies. They begin to move us and even transform our bodies. These hormones and the desire that they create, they are a good and gracious gift. Now, if you have a teenager, you're probably thinking this morning, it's not that good for me because I'm trying to hold that back in my kids, right? I'm not there yet, but it won't be long. We need to know it's a good thing. It's a gracious thing. I don't know about you, but I'm a father of of daughters, I long for the day, and I don't want to rush it, but I long for the day that my daughters take their hand out of my pocket and stick it in another guy's pocket. The right guy, of course. Sexuality moves us, or this attraction moves us toward marital commitment. And so when we think about this issue of sexuality, this gift of sexuality, we need to understand that it must stay within the boundaries that God has set and so our, uh, our sexuality must always be biblical. Leads us to a second truth. Biblical sexuality is expressed between a man and a woman. Going back to Genesis 127, he made them male and female. We go to the end of chapter 2, and we see that man and woman are naked and unashamed. There's no man, man. There's no woman, woman. It's man and woman. So, again, the statement, if we get Genesis wrong, we get life wrong. If we get Genesis wrong when it comes to this issue, we get marriage wrong. We get relationships wrong. We get sexuality wrong. Original humans and the first family unit, they consisted of a man and a woman. Eve was Adam's helper. She complimented him in every way. Where he was hard, she was soft. Where he was weak, she was strong. They enriched one another through their differences. Biologically, they complemented one another. Emotionally, they complemented one another. Relationally, they complemented one another. There are all kinds of differences between a man and a woman, and all of the differences are intended and necessary. They're not mistakes by God. We don't look for a partner that's just like us, that's, that has the same mindset, the same, the, the same strength, the same abilities. No, we're naturally drawn to the opposite gender. And many times, personality-wise, we're drawn to something who's the exact opposite of us. I'm much more introverted than Kara is, so she compliments me in that area. She makes me look good. She makes it seem that I like people. I'm glad that made you laugh. I was trying to help you out this morning. We're drawn to people. Who complement us? There are all kinds of differences. And so they enable these differences, enable the man and they enable the woman to complement and complete one another. steal a line from Jerry Maguire. Adam, I want you to think about this. When Adam's in the garden, and, and this is prior to having Eve, when he's naming the animals, and he realizes that there's something lacking in his creation, he didn't need another man. He needed a woman. And if Eve had been the one created first, and Eve had that responsibility of naming the animals, and she went through the same mental processing that that Adam did, she would have came to the same conclusion. I don't need another Eve. I need Adam. I need a man in my life. And as a man, I need a woman in my life. Adam needed Eve. Biologically, I mean, it just makes sense. He cannot reproduce with a man. And the command from God is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. How is he going to do that without a woman? Likewise, emotionally, he cannot connect with a man on the relational level his heart desired. We men many times don't have the emotional, mental, perhaps, capacity to move into the areas that we need to move in. And so who helps us with that? The woman does. She's softer, she's more tender, she's gentle than pr- most men, and their gruffiness. Is that a word? I think that's a word in Arkansas that we use. And so God created and gifted to Adam a woman. And they expressed their sexuality together. And the same could be said for Eve if we flipped it around. She needed So biblical sexuality, that which honors God and blesses us, is always expressed. And I stress that again, always expressed. Biblical sexuality is always expressed between a man and a woman. Can there be sexuality between the same genders? Yes, but it's not biblical. That's the key. And if it's not biblical, it's not god honoring. If it's not biblical, it's destructive in our lives, in our homes, and in our culture. So this reality is seen here in Genesis. It's seen throughout the Bible. Heterosexuality, that is, man and woman, is blessed. And yet homosexuality is condemned. There are no exceptions. A man with a man and a woman with a woman is unnatural, and it is perverse. It is a wicked twist on God's beautiful and perfect design. The same should be said of all other sexual sins. Pornography, extramarital affairs, any sort of immorality in a person's life, those things are not right. It's biblical sexuality is between a man and a woman. Pornography is the individual whether it's a man or a woman and there's no one else there except an image or a fantasy. And it's wrong. It's evil. And it is sinful. Leads us to a third truth. Biblical sexuality is only expressed within the context of marriage. So we got to take it to this point. We can't just say it's between a man and a woman with no confines there. Because Adam and Eve weren't allowed to just have relations with anybody and everybody as they lived their lives out. Because obviously it was just them at the beginning. But there were people who came after them. It was always in the context of marriage. Chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Not wives, it's singular. Not any woman, not other man. No, it's his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Sex again. We see here in Scripture was and is God's idea. He is the one who's given it to us as a wonderful gift for our pleasure and for procreation. We could say it this way, God is pro-sex. And that, that sounds taboo in church, but it shouldn't be. God is pro-sex. God is pro uh, Sexual relations, God is pro-marriage if you take it to where we need to take it. He's pro all of these things. Marriage is God's idea. Sexual unions are God's idea. It's a wonderful gift that brings partnership and it brings protection. When sex and marriage are experienced and enjoyed together as God intended, the joys and the blessings that come with that, the things that are ours through that are seldom, if ever, surpassed by anything else in life. Nothing can compare with the union between a man and a woman in marriage as they love each other, serve one another, and love and serve the Lord. Nothing can compare with that. I mean, we try to act like other things are more important or give us more joy. I love to fish. I love to hunt. I love to do all those things. They never brought me any more joy, not even close to the joy that I get from being married to Kara. We're not talking about the, 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 the sexual relationship there. Just talking about the union that comes, living out this one flesh that Genesis 2.24 talks about. But I think we can agree that sex is pleasurable, that it is enjoyable. The problem in our culture is that we have allowed sex and sexuality to become casual. We've devalued it in our culture. But we cannot allow it to be reduced to a simple act of procreation. Likewise, it cannot be reduced to the simple release of sexual satisfaction. Both extremes are wrong. If we just say, as Christians, and some would do this, they would say, because sex can lead us to sin, it can be a tempting thing in our life then we should not. We should shun it. We should only do it to procreate. That, I believe, is a, a, a false pretense of what the Word of God says. We also don't swing to the other side and say it's all about sexual satisfaction. It's all about release of this these desires and, and living by the hormones. We should not live on either end. Instead, we live within the tension. We enjoy its pleasure. We understand God uses it to procreate, to fill the earth, but we do it God's way. It involves, <laughs> it involves those elements, but it cements the union between a man and a woman. That's what it says here. They became one flesh. So this means that sex, outside of the biblical parameters, it's destructive and dangerous. It, it, think about what's, when, when we engage in sexual activity outside of the confines and the parameters that God has laid, what happens? What are the dangers? Sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies destruction of relationships. All kinds of things come along with that when we do things outside of what God has stipulated, not to mention the psychological and spiritual scars. You see, one of the things about this issue that makes it different than everything else is that it is so much more complex. We don't. Here's the thing. Anytime you're engaged in Elicit sexual activity outside the parameters that God has ordained, it is destructive not just on you but the others who are around you. It affects your spouses. It affects your children. Nothing can ever be hidden. Nothing is ever just between you and the person or the act. It's always so much more encompassing than that. So any sex outside the biblical parameters is destructive and it is dangerous. So we then need to be committed to keeping our sexuality within those boundaries of marriage. This means for those not married, that premarital sex is is a non-issue. We're not going to engage in that until it's time. I love how the Song of Solomon talks about how we're not going to, we're not going to open the, the field or we're not going to let the foxes loose before it's time. In other words, we're not going to engage in that. We're going to save ourselves for our future spouse. And that doesn't mean Only for those who have never been married, but not for those who have been divorced or widowed, that they're open to do anything else. No. Anytime you're not married, sexual activity is off limits because it's dangerous. It needs to be in the confines of marriage. Marriage means all extramarital sex is off limits as you give yourself to your spouse. This includes pornography and anything like it. You see, your, desi- desi- your desire should only be for the spouse that God has graciously given to you. There's a verse in Proverbs 5.19, and I'm not going to quote it because we have uh, younger ears in here, but we need to go to this verse and, and take it. look at it as a, from a man's point of view and look at it from a woman's point of view because it will help you in your marriage to be satisfied where you're at. It means also that homosexuality is off limits. Biology easily makes the case that it's not normal or right, but the Bible clearly condemns it in Leviticus 18.22 as an abomination against God. And and so in our culture today, uh, there's a redefining of what homosexuality is, whether it is or is not a sin, but the Bible has never changed. God's word never changes. God's character never changes. He is immutable, and so his word's not going to change on this issue. It is an abomination. It is sin. It is wicked. It is evil. If we were to go to Romans chapter 1, we would see that it is the downward spiral of rejecting the truth of God that leads us to that place. We don't begin at that area and say, I believe that this is right. No, we reject God's word, reject his truth, and little by little we begin to accept certain things, and it culminates in an embracement of that which is a complete perversion of God's gift of sexuality. So the Bible is clear in its teaching. Our culture, though, is moving in a direction contrary to the Bible's position on sexuality. And so how do we respond to those who are living in sexual sin? Let me give you three applications, and then we will um, close up. First thing I want you to see here is this. We need to stand firmly on the Word of God and share the truth with others. I believe this is important because in nearly every church I've ever served, there have been families or a family who has a family member, I'm choosing my words carefully here, who is a practicing homosexual. Or, or they're moving at least in that area. And so what I've seen in my 20-something years of ministry is I've seen uh, traditional, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching type of Christians because of blood kin who've moved in that direction that their convictions have morphed into an accommodation of their sin. We can't ever do that. You're not helping your loved one by accommodating their sin and saying, no, it's okay, God loves you. Yes, He loves you, but He does not love your sin. And if you don't repent of that sin, you will experience an eternal judgment from God. Any and all sin. It doesn't matter what your sin is. Let's not compartmentalize it. But there is something about that sort of lifestyle that is so in the face. And and Romans 1, again, it is a suppression of the truth. It's indicative of a heart that is not right with God. And so we dare not, as God's people, accommodate any sin, much less this sin. Think about what sin is by its very definition. It's a rejection of his word, of his truth. And we go to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rejected God's word. They sinned against God when he said, do not eat of that tree. What did they do? They ate of that tree. And so sexual sin happens when individuals choose to reject God's standard for sexuality in favor of their own ideas and desires. I alluded to Romans 1. But there in verse 18, he, Paul talks about the suppression of truth. They reject God. They reject his standards. They reject his goodness. And instead, they believe the lie that their way is better, that it brings more satisfaction to a person's life. They exchange the truth for a lie, which results in God giving them what they deserve. Verse 24 and 25 of Romans 1. It's this downward spiral. you reject the truth, God just says, here you go. Run after what you want. And see what it will bring you. I started reading Judges devotionally. If you're reading through the Bible with me, you did as well a few days ago. And we preached through Judges a few years ago. And that's the same cycle. God gives people what they want when they reject truth. And so we as the people of God, we have to stand firm on the word, share that truth with others. Because it's dangerous for them to continue to walk in sin. Regardless of what people may believe, what they may practice about sex, we as believers must stand firmly on the Word of God, share its truth with others. We dare not waver in our commitment to God's truth. It brings us to a second application. Empathize and be sensitive to the sexual confusion people are experiencing. See, we have to meet people where they are. When I say stand firm on the Word of God, that doesn't mean we beat them on the head with it. But we're empathetic. We're sensitive to what's happening, what has happened to them. Sometimes people fall into a homosexual lifestyle because as a child they were abused by an adult perhaps adult of the same gender, and I don't understand psychologically how that happens or how it leads into that particular lifestyle, but I know it's a reality. And so we need to know what the parameters are, what the consequences are, or what the situation was that led them to this lifestyle, and speak into that situation. Speak the truth, speak the gospel, and lead them to a place of faith and repentance. So we meet the people where they are. The gospel does not demand that a person be clean and, and, and clean up their life before they come to know Jesus, and neither should we. We meet them where they are. And in doing so, we're sensitive to what's going on in their lives. We demonstrate our love and acceptance of them and as, a, 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 as well as of the Lord Jesus to them as well. Think about what the Lord did. I read it this morning in Mark. He ate with prostitutes and he hung out with adulterers. He 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 had lunch with tax collectors. He hung out with a riffraff of society. He met people right where they were, and we need to do the same thing. Today, we have all kinds of people in our culture who are experiencing gender confusion and homosexual attraction, and our response should not be rejection, but it should be acceptance. not acceptance of the lifestyle, but acceptance of the person. Why? Because they're made in the image and the likeness of God. They have intrinsic and eternal value. So we don't write them off. We lovingly embrace them, and we show them that God has a better design for their life that satisfaction that they're really seeking through these different things can only be found in relationship with the God who created them for himself. So we love and accept them, point them to truth. We speak into their lives, all of those who are caught in other sexual sins, and we lovingly point them to Jesus. Brings us to a third thing. We share the gospel and call people caught in sexual sin to repentance and faith consequences we know of sexual sin are are grave. Many times they're more invasive than other types of sin. It is, however, not beyond redemption. Aren't you grateful that no sin you've ever committed is beyond the redemptive hand of Jesus? This side didn't hear that statement. Aren't you grateful that nothing you've done sinfully is beyond the redemptive hand of God? And they said, hey man, I was kind of weak, but okay. We'll get coffee for the left side next week. Nothing you've ever done is beyond God's redemption. It's never beyond the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for you. It's not beyond the love of God that embraces you and brings you in. Nothing, no sin, no horrible, despicable sin. Truth is, all sin is despicable for a holy God. All sin is is condemned before an infinite and eternal and holy God. And yet nothing is beyond redemption. How is that so? It's because Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Jesus is the embodiment of love. Jesus is the embodiment of forgiveness. He, is the, he alone can and will set sinners free from the bondage of sexual sin. I mean, Jesus himself said, the truth shall, shall set you free. Who's the truth? It's Jesus. Who's love? It's Jesus. He's the one that brings us. So our responsibility is we stand on the word of God. We empathize and understand sensitively where that person is. We meet them on that level, and we share the gospel with them, calling them to faith and repentance. That's our responsibility. That's how we engage a culture that is sexually perverse. We preach the gospel. We love people to Jesus. We're his hands, his feet. It starts in our homes I mean, parents, let's set parameters for our kids. We don't, let's not allow them to do anything and everything that they want to do. It is so easy to fall into this, this lifestyle today with all things that are out there. And so be a parent. Parent your children. Be a guardian over their hearts and over their souls and over their minds. Those images that you see, you will never lose those. So make sure they don't get those images before it's time. Be a parent in that area. We as adults, we need to guard ourselves as well. And so we need to take care of ourselves, but we also speak into the lives of those who need to hear the gospel. If a, if a follower of Jesus today is caught into some of this sexual sin, there's no there's no aspect of you're beyond redemption. No, there's always redemption. There's always the the, the ability to come back and for God to clean up your life and to heal the brokenness there and the broken fabrics that's Uh, affected others who are around you, but it all comes through the gospel. We live in a culture that has grossly perverted this issue of sexuality. Our culture is sinful. Our culture is evil. In fact, many, even within the church, as I just said, are caught up in this web They're looking at pornography, they're engaging in premarital sex, they're cohabiting, they're having affairs. Why is it that we in the church many times don't look like any different than the people in the world? I can't tell you over the years how many people that have either discipled or or, or ministered to, they've been in the churches I've served, but they've walked away from the faith, they've had affairs, they've engaged in all kinds of sexual sin. It is happening. Many also believe there's nothing wrong with homosexuality and transgendered people. God help us as a church if that's where we're going to move to. God help us if our mentality is, well, they're just born that way. Well, culture may say that, but that's not what the Bible says. He says that they were made male and female. He says that the first a family unit was a man and a woman, and everything in Scripture that's blessed is that same sort of equation. So the truth is, our culture is sinful and perver- perverted. We've perverted the gracious gift of God, and yet it's not irredeemable. I love, I'm going to end with this, but in John chapter 4, it's one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Gospels, and at this point in in, in this early ministry of Jesus, he's moving through the region of Samaria, and he sends his disciples into Sychar to get some supplies. He stays outside of the town by a well because Jesus in his providence, you know he's God, right? So Jesus in his providence and sovereignty knows there's this woman who's going to come to the well. He knows she's been married five times, and he knows she's, he, she's shacked up with a guy at this point. Can I say that in church? That, that's, a, that's a phrase that my family always said. I don't know. Uh, That's probably not a good phrase. I'm kind of on this trend lately of saying things I shouldn't say in nine o'clock service. But um, she's living with a guy, and so he begins to engage her in conversation lovingly, tenderly graciously never just says, you know what, I know you've been living with a guy for a number of months, and I know you've been married five times. I know everybody in town avoids you because you have a lifestyle. He didn't approach her that way. No, he engages her in conversation. He begins to speak about religious things with her. He gets her to a place where he can share and reveal himself to her. And you know what she does? She accepts it. She receives it. And we know that because she goes into the town where she's an outcast, and she says, come out to the well. There's a guy who knows everything about me, and I want you to meet him. And they all came out. They asked Jesus to stay two more days, and many people came to know Christ as Lord and Savior through that. Here's a woman, as loose as you can get, living a lascivious type of lifestyle, just terrible, sinful, perverse lifestyle. Jesus meets her where she was. He speaks truth into her life, and she is redeemed. What does that mean for you and I today? It means that no matter what we're walking in sinfully, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, and the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us and draws us to him. That means that those in our families who are walking in sin, those who are living in our neighborhoods, those who are in our communities, those in our nation who are engaging in this sinful lifestyle, there is nothing that would separate them or bring them beyond the point of redemption. It's good news. The good news is that God loves you so much, he created you, he created you for himself. The bad news is that we're all sinners, not just sexual sin, but all rejection of God's truth. And the best news is, is that through the good news of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, we can all be forgiven and brought into a saving relationship with Jesus that doesn't just last for a day, it lasts for eternity. Amen. So I don't know where you're at this morning. But if you're walking in any sort of sin, maybe you need a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're a believer and and there's a sinful pattern in your life that's not been repented of. Today, you can be forgiven and you can walk out of that lifestyle that's destroying you and those around you. Let's pray. Ben, if you want to come and play. Lord God, I am grateful this morning that our sin never cancels us out. That your grace is always available. Your forgiveness is always available. The fact that we're hearing this this morning means that it's available. That means that you're offering an appeal for us to turn from our sin, to turn from our wicked ways, to find forgiveness and healing and restoration in you. Lord, I pray for those watching us online. I pray for those even in this room who are not in relationship with Jesus, that they are like that woman at the well outside of Sachar that need to know Jesus, walking in the deadness of their sin, the separation of their sin, and they need life today. I pray that you would help them to realize that great need. And by faith, turn from their sins and turn to Jesus. Lord, I pray for the rest of us who are watching or here in the room who are followers of Jesus. But, Lord, we're not immune to sin. Christians are not immune to sin. We know that. It's an ongoing struggle within our lives. But there's always forgiveness. There's always the cleansing, sanctifying work of the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, Lord, this morning, I pray. That if there's a teenager, a man, a woman, whoever this morning, that you've just impressed upon their heart. You've kind of put your finger there on an issue in their life that is wrong and evil and rebellious. God, I pray this morning they would just simply lay at the foot of the cross and say, Lord Jesus, this is sin. I acknowledge it. I confess it. I need forgiveness there. Help me, Lord, to walk in repentance from this day forward. God, give us the faith and the heart to do just that. Bless this time as we sing in response to the word, in response to the truth. Help us, Lord, to do so faithfully and with a repentant heart. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.